Welcome to Starting Points, a Faith on Hill podcast. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill Church. Starting Points is designed to be a starting or a restarting point to anyone's reading, studying, engaging with, wrestling with the Bible, which we believe to be the very Word of God that is authoritative and inspired for all who would believe. We are in the prophetic books of the Bible, and today we are going to be looking at the writings of Joel. Now, the book of Joel, as you might have guessed, was written by the prophet Joel. Now, it kind of goes in, in four sections. The first and the shortest is chapter one, the first 14 verses, where the prophet Joel talks about a plague of locusts. A local plague of locusts, I believe a literal plague of locusts. And that's a real problem in the Mediterranean. Um, these, these swarms of locusts come, they eat everything in sight, and they can devastate the agriculture of a region. I was reading this week about uh, the island of Cyprus uh, in the 1300s being devastated for years by these swarms of locusts. Nothing could grow there. Almost killed all human habitation on the island. And, and uh, there are other places where just swarms would come up. That's why they're referred to so often in scripture as a, as a plague is because it was common and still can be a thing in uh, the Mediterranean regions that these swarms of locusts can come up. Now, obviously in our modern days, there's things we can do with pesticides and things that abate that. But if we weren't dealing with that, you know, in ancient times, that would still be an issue. And then from uh, chapter one, verse 15 through chapter two, uh, there is a looking forward to the day of the Lord. And then chapter three, he looks at the day of the Lord. And, and, and how I would see it is that chapter three, verses one through 15, uh, deals with the tribulation that we read about in the book of the Revelation. And then chapter three, verse 16 through 21, um, speaks to uh, the, the millennial kingdom that's at the very end of the book of the Revelation. So, as I said, Joel wrote this book. He was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, he does not make any reference to the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, we don't know 100% when he prophesied. He doesn't mention any other kings or prophets. Um, so it's hard to say when he was prophesying. Many scholars date the book at about 835 BC, uh, which is about 220 years before uh, Jerusalem was, was uh, sacked and the Babylonians carried off Daniel and his friends. Um, so what that means is that Joel is a pre-exile prophet. Um, he served before the fall of the northern kingdom um, and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom fell in 721 BC and then the southern kingdom ultimately fell in 586, but really started their fall in 605. Um, other pre-exile prophets include Obadiah and Jonah and Hosea and Amos and Isaiah and Micah. And then there's people who were there at the, the, the exile or the beginning of the exile, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel. Joel is actually one of the earliest prophets. Uh, only Obadiah is thought to have prophesied before him. Now, if it was 835 BC, and I'm not an expert in these things, you know, I read the experts, I can, I can understand their arguments, but I'm not, so I'm going to go with this. If it was 835 BC, um, then it was a time of turmoil and transition in Judah. It was the end of the reign of the queen uh, Atathiah, or Ad Adaliah, and the beginning of the reign of King Joash. Now, 
Athaliah had seized power uh, after the sudden death um, of her son, Azahiah, who had been the king. And he had only reigned for about a year, and that's in 2 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 22. And Athaliah killed her son's heirs, except for one who was hidden in the temple and escaped, and that was this one-year-old kid named Joash. Um, and so she killed all the heirs so she could seize power, and then she reigned for six years. And then after six years, uh, the high priest, Jehoiada, overthrew her and then set the seven-year-old Joash on the throne. That's 2 Kings 11. And during her six years as queen over Judah, she was wicked. She uh, was the granddaughter of the ungodly king Omri of Israel. Uh, and then she was daughter or niece. It's a little unclear. Uh, they didn't keep track of the records of, of women uh, the way they did the records of sons. Uh, but she was either the daughter and niece uh, or niece of Ahab, who was the worst king in Israel. And we've been talking about him uh, this summer as we've been on Sunday mornings. We've been looking at the life of Elijah. And then she had a son, uh, Azahiah, that she reigned. Uh, raised her to reign and then uh, taught him about, you know, basically he reigned the same way that Ahab did. And then he died and then she seized power. Now, again, if we're accurate in our thinking that he, when he prophesied, um, then the judgments he described are coming towards the end of the six years of this, this evil queen. And it's kind of, as David Guzik says, it's no wonder that God brought a heavy hand in his message to Judah. Now the name Joel means Jehovah is God. It would actually be Joel. Jehovah is God. El is the Hebrew word for God. Therefore, uh, now that constitutes a sort of confession of faith. You know, uh, Boyce says it's somewhat like how in the New Testament we confess Jesus is Lord. In his day, he is confessing that Jehovah or Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is God. And the false gods, the Baals, the Ashtoreths that, that, uh, the queen had brought as her father and mother had worshiped, uh, they are false. Now, the human story is this, is that jo Joel was not announcing a coming judgment of the Lord. He's describing their present state. And he's using this swarm of locusts that they've been dealing with, you know, chewing and swarming and crawling and consuming. And he's using that as, an, as, a, as a picture that they could all relate to. Everyone had experienced it. You know, in my parents' generation, where were you the day Kennedy died? My grandparents' generation, where were you when you heard about Pearl Harbor? In my generation, where were you on 9-11? All of them had experienced this once in a you know, couple hundred years plague of locusts. And so he's using it as a picture to describe to them their spiritual state. Now, one of the things that Joel describes is that because of the famine of locusts, or the, the plague of locusts, that the sacrifices in the temple had to stop because there was no more grain or wine to offer before God in the temple. Queen Athaliah's reign was wicked, but even then the temple ceremonies were allowed to continue. She didn't shut them down. And what's interesting is, you think about this, I, I like what uh, Guzik says about this, this shows us that the devil doesn't mind ceremonies in and of themselves, that the devil is more interested in corrupting true religion than eliminating it. And we see this played out in the book of the Revelation as we just studied this last spring, that the Antichrist comes to power and he doesn't get rid of religion. He co-ops it. He corrupts it. You might go to church. You might have been baptized. You might take communion. You might be confirmed in some traditions. You might be a member in other traditions. And, and yet it doesn't matter because 
The ceremonies doesn't matter. The ritual doesn't matter. It's the person whose heart, whose soul, whose life is surrendered to God. It didn't matter that they went to the temple and they offered their grain offerings and their wine offerings and once a year they offered the lamb at Yom Kippur. It didn't matter because while they were there doing that, then they would go to the groves and the high places and give offerings to Baal and worship at the Ashtoreth poles in their immorality. They were rebellious to God in this time. They were not observing God's law about letting the land rest, which is what led to uh, the sentence that they were given in their captivity uh, in, in Babylon. And it's interesting that the devil doesn't care about the ceremonies or the rituals. The thing that people make a big deal of to show how holy or spiritual or religious we are, they don't care. And at the same time, what is it that God says? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire that you would obey me far more than that you would, you would offer me a ram or a bull. What's also interesting here is in Joel chapter 2, the Lord says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with weeping and fasting and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Again, what, what's on the inside that matters not the outside. Don't go tear your garments to show how sorry you are. Change your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents in sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Think about that. That's the human story. They were doing all of the outward things, all of the religious things. You could come to Israel, to Jerusalem, and you would see the Jewish people carrying out the obligations in the temple. You could see the Jewish people doing what they were supposed to do on the outside, but the inside was not towards God. And that is still the human story of many people. I went to church I took confession. I took communion. I was baptized. I became a member. I was confirmed. I sang songs. I raised my hands. I, I knelt down. I prayed. But on the inside, my heart was far from God. There is great truth in the teaching that says there's no matter what you do, God will forgive you. That's 100% true and biblical. What is not true and biblical is the idea that I can just do whatever I want and then God will forgive me and I don't, it doesn't really matter. I'm not going to change anything. I don't care that I did these bad things. I'll do the bad things and then God will forgive me. It's also interesting in terms of human story. Think about this. Is this the angry God of the Old Testament that so many people say? There's the angry God in the Old Testament and there's the loving, sweet God in the New Testament. Is the angry God of the Old Testament the one that says, return to me, return to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He relents from sending calamities. He may even leave behind a blessing. Is that the angry God of the Old Testament? Yet part of the human story is knowing the moment you're in. Joel chapter 2 verse 15 says this, Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, let those nursing at the breast, let the bridegroom leave his room, let the bride her chamber, 
Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance the object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Know the moment we're in. Know the moment you're in, I'm in personally, individually. Know the moment that we are in collectively as a people. Part of the human story is recognizing the moment that you're in. And there comes a time where every person must do this. Every person must repent. Believing in Jesus isn't just, well, I believe that Jesus existed or that, you know, if, if, I, if I just believe in Jesus, that'll do the Jesus magic so that I get to go to heaven. To believe that Jesus is Lord is to believe that all other gods are false. To believe that Jesus is Lord is to repent and turn from our sins. To believe that Jesus is Lord is to grieve our sin and rejoice in the powerful work of God. Now, the question we ask on here is what are the landmines, what are the controversial points? Uh, There is debate about whether the locusts were a real plague or whether it's metaphorical. I tend to think that it was a literal thing that happened. I think that's very reasonable, um, but it doesn't really bother me if it's sort of metaphorical. There's debate about the day of the Lord. Is it a single day? Is it a general period of time? Is it sort of an allegorical or metaphorical concept? I tend to think it means many things. When the Bible, especially in the Hebrew scripture, refers to the day of the Lord, I think it is speaking of, generally speaking, the, the end of all things, the final wrapping up of things. And that could equally be a seven-year period as it could be a single day. Um, it could equally be um, a certain amount of time as it is just, just a few hours. Uh, it can mean many things at once. There are people that want to argue and debate over that, and there's, there's groups of churches that make a big point about, like, no, it's an actual single day. I just don't want to argue about it, but whatever. That's a thing that people argue about. Also, there is uh, some debate here. Chapter 3 is, is a fairly strong proof text uh, for biblical Zionism. The idea that Zion, Jerusalem, is the city that God has given to the Jewish people, boy, that's fraught with landmines. You know, there's the whole uh, Israel-Palestinian conflict. There's the whole thing about, you know, how the church is supposed to view Israel. Like, there's a lot that's there. So that's something that people have to work through on their own. And I'm happy to have conversations about it, but it's something that people have to work through. Now, the more important question is, where is Jesus seen? It's interesting that Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, quoted, by Peter in the first gospel message ever given. In Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes the prophet Joel, and he says, Afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And Peter quotes Joel. People are like, what's going on? The Holy Spirit descends on the church. They're all speaking in tongues and praising God. And they're saying, what's happening? And Peter says, it's just like the prophet Joel says. God's going to pour out his spirit on all people. And he's doing that right now and right here in this place. And yet that's not the whole of the prophecy. Verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming and great and dreadful day of the Lord. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom call on the Lord. What does that mean? Where's Jesus seen? Well, first, there was a promise of deliverance for those who would, if the people would repent. And I think there was a coming judgment. And because the people did repent, 
they did repent under King Joash, judgment was held off for another couple hundred years. But in the ultimate, the end of the story, the full fulfillment of this is there will come a day when God will make things right, where he will judge the wickedness of this earth, where the war, corruption, greed, hardship, human trafficking, immorality, violence, they will all be held for account. But those who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who say that Jesus is Lord will be saved. Those who turn from their sins and surrender themselves to the work that Jesus does as he sends the Holy Spirit of God to change people's lives, they will be saved. The Bible says, be holy as God is holy. We can only be holy as we are submitted and surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit, making that work, making that change, not of our own strength, but of God's. I'm thankful for Joel. I'm thankful for his message. I'm thankful that the people listened and for 200 more years they were spared judgment. I'm thankful that I listened to God and I regret when I haven't. And I pray that anyone listening to my voice would respond and say yes to Jesus and to the power of his Holy Spirit. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Starting Points. We'll see you again next time and Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. God bless you.